0: Tobacco addiction is Canada's leading cause of preventable disease, disability, and death. Physicians and other healthcare providers can be instrumental in identifying and motivating smokers to quit. But what is the best approach? What is the best way for physicians to offer assistance? I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today... I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Reed and Dr. Andrew Pipe from the University of Ottawa Heart Institute, Division of Prevention and Rehabilitation. Dr. Reed and Dr. Pipe are professors in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa and leading experts in smoking cessation. Along with their co-authors, they published a review article in the CMAJ on managing smoking cessation. I reached them in Ottawa. Dr. Reed, Dr. Pipe, hello. Hello. Good afternoon. It's uh, great to have a chance to discuss the important topic of smoking cessation with you two today. Obviously, a hugely important topic for myself as a practicing respirologist, but really for all clinicians, all health professionals. To set the stage, let me start by asking you what for a respirologist is the ultimate rhetorical question. How important is it to quit smoking and why is it so important? This is uh, Dr. Pipe speaking. Well, I I think there's no other
1: intervention in clinical practice in virtually any discipline uh, that is as powerful as helping our patients stop smoking. I mean, I'm sure that our our audience is only too well aware of the carnage that results uh, every year as a consequence of tobacco addiction. Um, William Mosler used to say, if you know syphilis, you know medicine. We would argue that if you know tobacco, you know medicine because every organ system is affected by by tobacco addiction. Um, We know that that smokers in Canada typically lose 10 years of life expectancy. Those with chronic mental illness, or chronic psychiatric conditions, um, can lose as much as 25 years of life expectancy, all as a consequence of very high rates of, of, of smoking in that population. The very good news, however, is that if we can help our patients stop smoking before they reach the age of 40, we can eliminate virtually 90% of predictable excess morbidity and premature mortality.
0: So let's start at the beginning. A health professional encounters a patient, identifies that this is a patient who's a smoker, appropriately thinks to themselves, this is a good chance to intervene, start a conversation uh, about encouraging that patient to quit. Where should that clinician start? How do we approach these conversations and begin that intervention?
2: It's it's Dr. Reid speaking, I, I think it really starts by obviously having a systematic process in place to even identify who is a smoker. Many times physicians... Uh, may not be aware of even the smoking status of the patient. So you've got to, first of all, ask directly uh, if that individual is a smoker. Once you identify that you have a smoker in front of you, I think obviously advice to quit smoking that is clear and unambiguous uh, is very important. Um, but importantly, that also needs to be accompanied with an offer of assistance. Uh, the vast majority of smokers know that smoking is not good for them the vast majority would like to change their smoking behavior, but they simply find it too difficult to do it. Um, and uh, so that offer of assistance and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to help out uh, and we have effective treatments to do that is an important part of kind of opening up. In our experience, and we were, we were trying to reflect that in this article that we've uh, got in CMAJ, smokers kind of fall into, uh, they have different treatment goals. Uh, Of course, when we have a highly motivated individual who wants to do something about their smoking, the normal process would be to um, identify a quit date for them and uh, then set in place a process to provide uh, medications and counseling that can help them. But I think one of the evolutions that we see reflected in this article is also the thought that a lot of people have tried to quit previously uh, on on a set quit date. Uh, but now there's evidence really that that it may also be valuable for people to reduce the amount that they're smoking before they actually uh, get to that quit date. And so that provides another option. Um, another uh, group of patients as well, even if they're not interested in quitting completely at this particular point in time, may be very interested in reducing the amount that they smoke. Um, and so really there are treatment strategies that can be deployed for them and I guess the fourth category that people might fall into would be individuals that have no interest in really uh, cutting down or quitting at this time. And again, we would adapt our process accordingly.
0: So I wanted to explore a bit your recommendations around this idea of smoking reduction. Accumulated scientific evidence seems to show that once a patient's accumulated enough of a smoking issue to put themselves at significant risk of these serious smoking-related diseases, we all care about it, there really is no level of smoking reduction above zero that's been validated to meaningfully reduce many of those risks of adverse outcomes. So why and under what circumstances would you counsel a patient to try smoking reduction rather than trying to get them to go right for a quit attempts? completely.
2: I think that this is uh, where we get into some of the behavioral aspects of uh, this addiction that people are dealing with. Um, For some smokers, they just cannot contemplate being completely smoke-free. And so even though our goal as clinicians is to get them to that zero cigarette level, in many ways, people may need to uh, take baby steps in order to get there. And reducing is really just one step along the road to quitting for good. Uh, Even though we don't need to necessarily tell the patient about that, I think what we're simply trying to do is go along with where they're at in terms of what they feel they can do about their smoking right now. So I think if we can help them to reduce what happens in practice is that many patients who are able to successfully cut down the amount that they're smoking, and we can use medications and counseling to achieve that, they then think that it's more possible that they could actually go about setting a quit date. So when we talk about reducing smoking, we're really talking about that this is a way station along the way to hopefully getting people uh, to quit for good, and it will give them a good experience that sets them up better for success down the road.
0: So that seems to make sense, but do you worry at all about giving patients a sense of security in this discussion about smoking reduction. I have patients who come to me and say, I I have been able to quit, but I have cut down a lot and isn't that good, doctor? How do you handle that kind of dialogue with patients when they've reduced and think that they've made some progress?
1: Well, I think we want to reinforce that, in fact, they have made progress. And so we would congratulate them on that that achievement and and point out that, gee, they seem to have done that, and they've done that well. And, And with perhaps some extra assistance, uh, we can help them further down this journey and, and perhaps uh, move them to becoming non-smokers uh, entirely. Um, and, and the evidence in the literature is now very strong that these kinds of approaches are just as effective as that sort of age-old, well, you've got to go away and pick a quit date and come back and tell us when you're ready to stop smoking. Um, I, I think it, it allows us to have much more relaxed interactions with our patients uh, we can be encouraging and in, in gentle ways and and ask our patients to commence a medication because we uh, we think that this might help you uh, move along in the direction to ultimate cessation in a way that's uh, quite uh, quite comfortable and, and not as threatening as the idea of having a a make or break cessation attempt
0: right, and I think that's a very important nuance that that speaks to some of the frustration I think many of us space in in trying to help people quit smoking. Um, Let's get to what we can do to help people quit then. Obviously, medications are a big part of this. Tell us what our options are in terms of medication therapy.
1: Um, We're fortunate that we have available to us uh, three frontline pharmacotherapies, uh, nicotine replacement therapy, bupropion, uh, and most recently, vareniclin. Uh, And all of those agents can be effective. I, I think it's quite clear that varenicline is the most effective single agent and can typically triple the likelihood of smoking cessation success. Nicotine replacement therapy and bupropion can both approximately double the likelihood of smoking cessation success, But there's also very strong evidence that a combination of nicotine replacement therapy products, that is a patch used with an inhaler or a nicotine spray or a nicotine lozenge, can also approximately triple the likelihood of successful smoking cessation. There's also accumulating very solid, um, extensive evidence uh, of the safety of these medications. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, uh, clinicians have been, for perhaps understandable reasons, but, but nonetheless have been dogged or, or bothered by what they assume are, are potential side effects of, of these medications. And it's always very important to understand that the side effects of continuing to smoke greatly outweigh, by a huge margin, uh, any potential side effects of, of smoking cessation therapies. The typical side effects of smoking cessation therapies generally follow from the fact that they stimulate nicotine receptors in the brain at night or nicotine receptors in the gut throughout the day. And so as a consequence, nausea and sleep disturbances or vivid dreams are the most common side effects of smoking cessation pharmacotherapies. Uh, The concerns that that smoking cessation pharmacotherapies uh, can induce very significant psychiatric, neuropsychiatric side effects, behavioral changes, depressed mood, suicidal ideation, have effectively been eliminated as a consequence of the results of the recently published EAGLE study, which showed that there is no difference between varenicline, NRT, bupropion, or placebo in terms of inducing neuropsychiatric side effects in individuals undertaking smoking cessation. Finally, I, I would just say that Uh, With the exception of of pregnancy, um, these agents can be used in virtually any clinical setting. In pregnancy, I think it makes good sense to use nicotine replacement therapy. uh, And that allows me to make the comment that in many circumstances, the dose of smoking cessation therapies needs to be titrated. Uh, And that's particularly true in pregnancy, where the rate of nicotine metabolism is increased as a consequence of pregnancy a fact that is not generally appreciated by most clinicians, and therefore it may be necessary to up-titrate the dose of nicotine replacement therapy in order to allow an individual to be free of the symptoms of withdrawal and craving.
0: Let's talk about nicotine dosing in general. Are the nicotine products as typically prescribed to patients strong enough to meet their needs, Dr. Pipe? Well,
1: we, we have pretty good evidence that in many cases, in their typical form of prescription, they are not. Um, and, and that is that most we know that all smokers smoke to maintain a certain constancy of nicotine and, and a certain comfort level of nicotine, if I can use that term. Uh, and the standard doses of a nicotine patch or nicotine gum or spray and so on may not necessarily... Uh, meet the nicotine needs of of a would-be non-smoker. Now, the other good news is that smokers have an ability to, with almost exquisite precision, titrate their nicotine intake. Uh, and so one can almost rely on on would-be non-smokers to up the dose of their nicotine replacement therapy in order to ensure that their symptoms of craving and, and incipient withdrawal um, are effectively managed. A good rule of thumb is, One pack a day smoker, a 21 milligram patch plus another form of nicotine replacement therapy. A two pack a day smoker, two 21 milligram patches plus a more rapid form of nicotine replacement therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, it is ironic that physicians have agonized over the accuracy of dosing of NRT um, over the years, failing to recognize that a smoker self-administers when they inhale tobacco smoke Immense quantities of nicotine, which are delivered directly into the left ventricle via the pulmonary circulation. So you get stratospheric elevations of arterial nicotine with, with every puff um, on a cigarette, whereas NRT used clinically always delivers nicotine via the venous system in a much lower rate in order to achieve a steady state. But just as with other medications, we should be very comfortable and confident in in prescribing, monitoring a response, and titrating the dose as appropriate in accordance with those responses.
0: So I think some clinicians listening to this may be a bit surprised because that's much more aggressive than I think many clinicians are doing, but you provide the rationale for it quite clearly there. You also said that you combine more than one form of nicotine replacement when you offer it. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and, and the reason for that is, first of all, we know that it's far more effective than one agent used alone. Uh, but so let's say you're a two-pack-a-day smoker and we provide you and, or prescribe you two 21-milligram patches. You're wearing them, but during the course of the day, you suddenly experience a series of situations or circumstances which are very stressful, uh, where ordinarily you would immediately reach for a cigarette. And, and so the pressure to smoke at, at that time can become particularly more intense. But the use of a more rapid nicotine delivery system, such as the inhaler or the nicotine spray, nicotine lozenge, at that time can allow uh, an increase in in nicotine levels and and, uh, address the craving you're experiencing in those circumstances and gives you much more control over how you respond to those settings or circumstances or situations in the course of the day. And there's very, very good evidence to support those kinds of approaches.
0: So let's talk about how the clinician should make decisions about which form of pharmacotherapy to provide. Um, Is there one approach that works best for most patients, or is it a more individualized decision, and how does one best make that determination? Well, we're
1: typically guided by, in the first instance, patient preference. Um, and, And so if somebody tells us that they used product A, um, when they made a smoking cessation attempt a, a year ago, and they were successful for five or six months and it worked well and they knew how to do it um, for us it's it 's uh, pretty straightforward to say well boy you 've got some experience with that approach let's let 's uh, proceed in, in that direction um, otherwise I think we're we 're guided by considerations which uh, not only reflect patient preference but may reflect cost, which may reflect circumstances, drug benefit plans, et cetera, et cetera. I would say that in, a, in, in the hospital setting with admitted patients, uh, we make extensive use of nicotine replacement therapy because we can very quickly address nicotine withdrawal, which is a clinical reality, whether you're admitted to hospital with a compound fracture or anterior wall infarction or in premature labor. If you're a smoker in any of those circumstances, within an hour or two of your admission to hospital, you're gonna experience nicotine withdrawal, which can be manifest in any of a number of ways. So by providing nicotine replacement therapy, we can immediately begin to make our patients feel more comfortable while greatly facilitating the likelihood of ultimate smoking cessation when that's allied with that systematic approach to delivering smoking cessation services in in the context of a hospital admission. Um, So those are certain of the considerations. Um, certainly in pregnancy, I would say that nicotine replacement therapy would be the agent of choice. Although I think it's important for me to declare that I'm no longer in actively involved in the care of, uh, of pregnant women, but were I, that is the approach that, that I would take. We do not have concerns about the use of any of these, uh, pharmacotherapies in those with significant mental illness or, uh, psychiatric uh, issues, um. Because, again, of the burgeoning evidence that these, these agents can be used safely and effectively in, in, in those states.
0: Now, how about combining NRT with bupropion or vareniclon? if that's something you routinely do? It's it's
1: not something that we would routinely do, but it's something you're going to hear an awful lot more about. You know, I'm pretty confident and comfortable, as are so many of my colleagues, in providing two or three medications and asking patients to take them for the next 25 years in order to manage their hypertension or their dyslipidemia. But we've locked ourselves into this schema where we think uh, a small amount of medication for a short period of time should be able to deal with Canada's most tenaciously addictive drug. So, uh, we wouldn't routinely use combination therapy, but would be c- prepared to do so. And let me give you a classic example. Somebody who smokes two packs of cigarettes a day, we begin vareniclin, for instance, and over the course of several weeks, they, they drop down from two packs of cigarettes a day to seven or eight cigarettes a day, and they seem to be stuck. And that is a point at which we would typically um, add a small amount of nicotine replacement therapy. The reason being that vareniclin addresses only one of the 12 nicotinic receptors that are found in the brain, um, and, and we speculate that in the case I've just described, those other nicotinic receptors are, metaphorically speaking, uh, sort of saying, hey, I'm used to having lots of nicotine, what about, what about me, and, and, and contributing to the discomfort and, and uh, lack of progress that the patient might be experiencing. And so the addition of a, a nicotine patch to that regimen of, of varenicline can very often be, be very effective in helping
2: move somebody to total abstinence. As Dr. Reed speaking, and I'll just add a couple of things. I think in terms of the evidence that uh, certainly uh, when we look at clinical trial evidence, varenicline and NRT have been successfully uh, combined and with an increased uh, rate of abstinence without an increase in side effects, and bupropion and NRT have been combined. The evidence uh, with bupropion and varenicline, however, would be a little bit less convincing. So uh, typically it's looking at... uh, how we might add NRT to those prescription medications, as opposed to combining them together.
0: All right, now I have patients who say to me, you know, I've tried this particular therapy before and it just didn't work for me for whatever reason. How does one factor that into our choice of pharmacotherapy? Is it best for the clinician to avoid a therapy that hasn't worked before and automatically try something different? Or does it ever make sense to try a therapy again, even when it's failed before?
1: Well, I think the classical situation which we frequently encounter is somebody says, I want to stop smoking. I've tried to stop smoking before and I I used the nicotine patch and I just kept on smoking. That clearly isn't effective. Well, I I would say that in that situation, that patient is telling you they were underdosed um, because we know that if we can uh, elevate nicotine levels through the use of of, of a patch or other forms of NRT, um, we should be able to get levels of nicotine close to that Personal idiosyncratic comfort zone uh, in such a way that we can eliminate the symptoms of of craving and withdrawal to a very great extent. And if that is not happening with the use of NRT, then we know that that reflects a degree of underdosing. So um, I I think that's a situation that we frequently encounter uh, and and that we would would, uh, respond to in the way that that I've just described. Um, I I think also it's very important for us to ensure that as we provide pharmacotherapy that we're providing encouragement, advice, support, um, because we know that the provision of that kind of strategic tactical advice and support in and of itself can dramatically uh, and significantly enhance the likelihood of of success uh, when used in association with pharmacotherapy. Uh, and so I would, I would never underestimate the particularly the power of a clinician in talking about the likelihood uh, of ultimate success, reminding patients that the single most important predictor of success is in fact the number of times one has tried to stop smoking before um, and, and being very, very much uh, more encouraging. I, I think the other point that, that, that I would wanna make is that the overwhelming majority of smokers know why they shouldn't smoke. And and a majority of smokers don't want to be smokers. Smokers don't need more information. They don't need lectures. They don't need presentations on the adverse effects of tobacco products on the respiratory epithelium. Um, What they need is assistance and help in the communication on the part of their clinicians uh, that they understand that this can be difficult, but they're committed to helping them deal with this uh, significant uh, health issue.
0: So that's a good segue into behavioral therapies because, as physicians, I think we find it quite easy to write a prescription for a medication. But how important are behavioral treatments to the success of smoking cessation, and what types should the clinician consider incorporating into that?
2: Yeah, I think the behavioral side of things uh, is a, is an important thing. Behavioral treatments work by themselves, medications work by themselves, but when we combine those two things together, we get a synergistic effect that really optimizes the quit rates that you'll see. Uh, Having said that, I would say that the clinician advice uh, from the primary care provider is really the mainstay of, of providing assistance to smokers. And there's a couple of different things that seem to be particularly important about the kinds of advice that are provided. The evidence base suggests that they need practical uh, counseling on sort of how to to solve some problems that may emerge during the quit attempt. And that can be things like dealing with other smokers, how do they manage cravings, and then how do they manage situations where, where they may be very tempted to smoke. And it can be very useful to describe some of those situations or get get those out of your patient if you can or the, the circumstances which they occur and plan a strategy for how they will be dealt with in the future. A lot of times that has to do with using a fast-acting NRT product as an example to deal with the breakthrough craving or being able to walk away from a situation or being able to review cigarettes that are being provided by somebody uh, to that smoker. The second part of the um, the counseling, which is critically important, though in term and it relies upon the physician patient relationship, is really the emotional support that that the provider gives to the patient, and that comes from really expressing confidence in the patient's ability to to quit uh, because of your experience working with others, but also being able to praise actions that are taking and recognize that there will be successes and failures along the way, and it's about really about Continuing to provide encouragement along the long term. Now, I understand that in, in clinical settings, physician time may be limited. And so it is important to recognize that there are other evidence based assistance that are outside of the doctor's office that may also be valuable in supporting the patient in the quit attempt. All the provinces in Canada provide access at no cost to telephone quit lines. Uh, these can be very effective ways to extend the amount of counseling, which is provided. They, they are uh, staffed by trained counselors, and they can provide a lot more uh, strategies, practical strategies for patients to, to to help them cope. And then there also are web-based programs where people can uh, go online and they can get information that would allow them to develop their own personalized quit plan and again provide written information that can be highly valuable. Um, And um, those are available at smokershelpline.ca, both of those services. So from a behavioral standpoint, I think the reality is that in addition to being a very powerful addiction, there's also a lot of learned aspects to smoking. um, And those are some of the things that need to be undone as part of the counseling. My recommendation would be to uh, let patients choose to get involved in as much behavioral counseling as they think will help them. What the clinician does can be is obviously the mainstay, but it can be supported with some of these ancillary services that are available in the community. And I, I think uh, your listeners should be encouraged to uh, uh, help patients access those things because they, they do uh, add to the whole mix. Dr. Pipe speaking. The other point that
1: I think it's important to make here is that this is not just a responsibility of the primary care physician. Unfortunately, the default behavior of many of our specialty colleagues has been, uh, talk about this with your family doctor as and when you see them, if you've got one. Uh, And uh, we would argue very strongly that that assistance with smoking cessation should be seen as a fundamental clinical responsibility of any clinician who deals with with patients who are
0: smokers. You two are both part of a very successful program, which is known as the Ottawa Model for smoking cessation, that's generated some pretty impressive results over the years. Tell us briefly about how your program works, and what clinicians elsewhere can learn from your experience to help them do better with smoking cessation.
1: Thank you very much for your for your kind words. Um, the Ottawa model came came about here at the uh, University of Ottawa Heart Institute when we recognized that we were not doing as good a job as we should have been doing in terms of helping our patients who were admitted to the hospital um, who were smokers. And in part, as we like to say, the, the model consists of doing ordinary things extraordinarily well in a systematic, organized way. Uh, and, and Dr. Reed has already alluded to the fact of knowing the smoking status of patients who are admitted. And so the system ensures that at the time of admission, that smoking status is documented. That documentation triggers the initiation of an offer of assistance with smoking cessation, which reflects best practice use of pharmacotherapy and counseling, and then allows us to follow the patient following hospital discharge. And the program has been very successful. I think as the model has evolved and been expanded into hospitals all across Canada and into the primary care setting with models specifically designed for primary care practice, uh, we've also seen that this can make the lives of clinicians, their clinical activities, not only more effective, but also much more efficient. Um, And and I think what happens as a result of of the recognition of of, of the approaches that can be taken is, is that we, we get away from spending minutes and minutes and minutes preaching at patients and instead can talk very directly and very distinctly about ways in which we can help them and can do that in a systematic way. Um, and, and, and much of the credit for the, uh, for the development of this approach, of course, goes to Dr. Reed, who, who brought management principles and, and systematic thinking um, to, to the design and the evolution of this model
2: and just to add one other important component about that i think that there is uh, there there's no question that clinicians can also benefit from small amounts of training as well to really bring them up to speed about how how precisely to use these medications uh, making some of the points we've made today but also some of the basic uh, kind of counseling advice that can be very useful and a lot of this can be accomplished in a in a 30 to 60 minute kind of training session Uh, because there are some specific skills and knowledge that can really make it a lot easier to intervene with smokers. Uh, And again, as Dr. Pipe has mentioned, really, uh, it's all about putting in place systematic approaches so that uh, this becomes the routine that we're we're involved with, uh, and so that uh, it's just the way that we kind of do business. That's what it's really all about. And, And as we begin to think more about smoking cessation from the perspective of,
1: shall we say, being clinical scientists or clinicians rather than preachers, we also begin to understand that there are features uh, and and elements of smoking cessation practice about which most clinicians are blissfully unaware. Most clinicians are completely unaware that smoking stimulates the metabolism of caffeine. And so that if you stop smoking and continue to drink caffeine at a normal level, uh, your caffeine levels over four or five days will double, triple, or quadruple With the result that if you're a four or five double doubles a day coffee drinker uh, over three or four days of of early smoking cessation, your four or five double doubles will begin to feel to you like 12 or 15 double doubles with obvious implications for the development or the emergence of symptoms of caffeineism. Most, most clinicians are completely uh, unaware that that kind of relationship also exists to the metabolism of many of the medications that, that we typically prescribe. And, and so for those who are on psychotropic or antipsychotic medications, the metabolism of those medications is dramatically increased, thereby eroding their effectiveness in individuals who continue to smoke. We already talked about the rate of nicotine metabolism as being a determinant as to whether people can stop smoking with greater or lesser ease. When a woman is placed on the birth control pill, her rate of nicotine metabolism may increase. When she becomes pregnant or if she becomes pregnant, her, her rate of nicotine metabolism may even quadruple. So there are all of these kinds of implications, which as we begin to think more like clinicians and less like lecturers and hectorers, Um, can allow us to be much more uh, helpful to our patients who are embarking on, on smoking cessation.
0: All right. You've touched on some special situations, that I wanted to just explore a bit more. Let's pick up on your discussion of pregnancy, which you mentioned a few times during here. You mentioned you prefer nicotine replacement in that setting, but isn't there evidence that nicotine has adverse effects on the developing fetus? Now, obviously, you don't want the woman to get the nicotine from the cigarettes, but uh, are we doing any better by giving it back in NRT, or is it that we're worried about the other pharmacotherapies having even worse effects on the fetus? What's behind your recommendation?
1: Well, first, I think it's always important to consider that there's nothing that is more deleterious to the health of both the fetus and the mother than to continue to smoke. Uh, And and once again, clinicians are generally blissfully unaware that the carboxyhemoglobin levels in in the fetal circulation are multiples of those in the maternal circulation when somebody continues to smoke. Plus, a pregnant woman is not getting huge quantities of carbon monoxide, plus the four or 5,000 other chemicals, which are the constituents of tobacco smoke. So uh, a pregnant woman and her her as yet unborn child are infinitely safer receiving nicotine replacement therapy than they are if that uh, young woman was to continue to smoke. And that's a fundamental consideration. And, And unfortunately, I think uh, very often, we've become a little bit holier than thou and, and calculated how many angels dance on the head of a pin when we talk earnestly and supposedly learnedly uh, about issues that relate to nicotine and, and, and its impact and its effect, not only on in the case of the pregnant woman, but in, in the cardiac patient, for instance. Um, rather than understanding that the pharmacodynamics, the pharmacokinetics, the delivery systems are infinitely different uh, when we're talking about using NRT than we are having someone continue to smoke. And so that's the reason why why, um, one would be fairly robust in in terms of recommending the use of NRT early in pregnancy in order to uh, address the dire consequences of smoking throughout the course of a pregnancy. Um, And of course, there is a register for those who might wish to use bupropion, but the use of varenicline, notwithstanding that there is no evidence of it being a teratogen, um, I I I think is something that uh, certainly I as a clinician wouldn't undertake um, in in trying to help
0: a pregnant woman stop smoking. I see, that's helpful. Uh, Mental illness, again, we touched on it briefly, but Is there anything that differs in your approach to smoking cessation with a patient with mental illness compared to the usual type of patient?
1: Well, I think first and foremost is is the recognition that almost 45% of all cigarettes consumed in Canada are consumed by individuals with significant psychiatric conditions. And there are very good reasons for that. Uh, Once again, most clinicians are unaware that hundreds of times a day, a smoker is self-administering small doses of monoamine oxidase inhibitor-like substances Uh, which ease the symptoms of depression, which explains why it is that a majority of those with a history of propensity for or or previous depression are smokers. Uh, We know that those who are suffering with schizophrenia smoke so avidly, so aggressively, because Nicotine stimulates the alpha-7 nicotinic receptor in their brain, which affords a degree of relief from the intensity, the frequency, and the volatility of the auditory and visual stimuli, which constantly assail an individual with with, uh, schizophrenia. And as mentioned before, we know that those with significant psychiatric conditions in Canada have a life expectancy which is 25 years less than that of other Canadians, a discrepancy which is almost totally accounted for by the very high rates of tobacco-related diseases that occur in this population of individuals who have very high rates of smoking. Now, the good news is um, that cessation rates in such a population are only slightly below those in the general population, although assistance with smoking cessation may have to be a little bit more prolonged and, and slightly more support might need to be afforded, afforded such patients. The other very good news is that the management of the underlying psychiatric condition is always stabilized and enhanced with smoking cessation. And that too is a fact that is not generally appreciated uh, by by clinicians. And and certainly our psychiatrist colleagues are now much more aware and much more attuned to their responsibility to assisting with smoking cessation uh, because of of the consequences to the health of their patients, which far outweigh, if I can use that term or make that contrast, um, many of the consequences of their underlying
0: psychiatric conditions. E-cigarettes becoming more widely used, certainly heavily marketed. Should clinicians consider those as part of their armamentarium for helping patients quit smoking? Should they recommend them to patients?
2: Well, I think that the clinical trial evidence to date has been lacking in terms of uh, strong evidence that they, in fact, help people to quit. Um, And given that we already have evidence-based treatments that we've been discussing up until now, I think uh, they would not be certainly a first-line choice to help a patient. And there's some indications emerging that they may, in fact, interfere with quitting um, if they give people a false sense of security. Often we see, in fact, co-smoking where people continue to use these cigarettes and smoke uh, cigarettes at the same time. Um, So in terms of their use as a cessation aid, uh, the jury is is still out on that. And um, I would think that they wouldn't be your first line approach. And I think in addition to that, it,
1: it's important to consider that e-cigarettes are still technically illegal in Canada. They're unregulated. There's no assurances to the content of, uh, of the nicotine that may be in, in uh, the e-cigarette fluid. And as readers of the CMAJ will know, there's also concerning evidence uh, that continues to accumulate about the degree to which adolescents, adolescent non-smokers, uh, piqued by perhaps curiosity uh, and the desire for experimentation uh, are using these devices and, and undoubtedly will become addicted to nicotine. Some of them will become addicted to nicotine through the use of these devices and, and, it, and inevitably gravitate to combustion products. There's no question that you are infinitely safer inhaling nicotine produced as the result of vaporization or aerosolization. Um, smokers smoke for nicotine but die as a consequence of tar. All of which is to say that we, we would hope that the federal government would rapidly regulate these devices um, so that they uh, can be standardized and so that their their use in smoking cessation or as a supplement to smoking cessation endeavors can be can be more appropriately assessed.
0: Last question. If there's one recommendation, one piece of advice you would want to leave health professionals with that would best improve how smoking cessation is delivered in Canada, what would that be?
1: Well, I think um, we're we're often asked, what can we do to better assist our patients in changing their smoking behaviors? And and our answer is change our own. To continue to do what we've done over the last 35 years in terms of trying to help people stop smoking is delusional. We need to be much more systematic, much more informed, much more evidence-based, and and much more realistic in terms of the way in which we can uh, make use of the pharmacotherapies that are available to us titrate their dose, prolong the duration of therapy as, as as needed, and be far more systematic in every clinical setting in addressing Canada's leading cause of preventable disease, disability, and death.
2: And I, and I would just add to that, that I think that uh, uh, there's been a certain reticence on the part of clinicians to approach smokers because they think that they don't want uh, to hear anything about smoking. But again, what is really emerging is that If you're going to ask about smoking, it's very important to make an offer of assistance. And uh, if you're systematic about identifying and making that offer, I think most clinicians will be pleasantly surprised by the success they can achieve in this very, very important area of care.
0: Well, it has been a wonderful conversation full of lots of great information for our readers and listeners. I want to thank you both very much for joining us and having this conversation with us today. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, and and, we greatly appreciate the opportunity. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Reed and Dr. Andrew Pipe from the University of Ottawa Heart Institute Division of Prevention and Rehabilitation. To read the review article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.